0: Welcome back to Institutionalized, a podcast about American institutions and why they've gone crazy. I'm Charles Fane Lehman, Felth Manhattan's Tuting Editor, City Journal.
1: I'm Aaron Sabario, a reporter at the Washington Free Beacon.
0: And Aaron, how are you doing today? I'm pretty good, Charles.
1: I just got back from a few days in California. The last night I was there, I had nothing to do, so I decided what better way to spend my last few hours in the golden state than by going to see the new john wick movie and watching keanu reeves actually kill everyone who gets in his way it was beautiful uh just 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 a tremendous tremendous monument to the gods of action you should see it
0: I, I, I've actually, I've only seen the first one, which, which I enjoyed it, in, but I, I don't really know how this sustain it for the next three movies, I'm going to be honest.
1: They, they do, Charles, they do sustain it, because the, the, the trauma of losing his dog is so great that it sets in motion a chain of events uh, that cannot be wrapped up in a single movie, and it, it is amazing. And eventually, eventually, and eventually, Charles, John Wick gets revenge, not it just seems on like, the it seems like who killed his dog, but on every member of the criminal syndicate that is even tangentially related in any kind of causal way to the people who <laughs> killed his dog. And you're in favor of this. You think this is good. is beautiful. Yes. Those who are even faintly complicit in the killing of cute beagle puppies... Should obviously be this mad, is... shot with arrows, repeatedly massacred with bullets. The latest one has Dragon's Breath ammo, so he even uses, like it's, like, it's like a cross between a flamethrower and a shotgun. It's amazing, all because a few people killed his dog. Just, just, to I, make
0: stuff. I, I, this is, this is, well, yeah, this is what we're talking about today. This is the area of your worldview that she is most informed by... The fact that you like dogs rather than deep philosophical consideration.
1: <laughs> Correct.
0: Let's, let's, well, right. The goal of this episode is to make Aaron live consistently with his expressed values. Why, why don't do you want to introduce our, do you want to introduce our topic today for our listeners?
1: Yeah. So we, we've joked for a while on here
0: that, that we need to do an
1: episode on animals because Charles and I have i think it's safe to say somewhat different attitude towards them i think we both agree that torturing puppies for fun is bad i think i'm against it i'm, I'm okay against it. good but i would say i'm probably although i'm not a vegetarian myself a lot more sympathetic to the philosophical piece for vegetarianism i think i probably should be vegetarian or at least significantly pare down my consumption of various kinds of meat i do try to avoid uh, pork when possible, as well as octopus, because those are the two smartest animals that we eat, to my knowledge. So I think they have extra moral standing and thus it's extra bad to kill them. But more generally, just I've always found animals, I-, I think they're cute, I like them. I like dogs, I like birds. It also happens that parrots are among the smarter animals we keep. They can have the IQ of five-year-old children. So if you torture parrots to death, that's kind of like torturing a five-year-old child to death. No one should do that. You know, in, in terms of the, the kind of focus on this podcast, just to narrow it a bit, I would say some of our episodes are about the way institutions work and others are about how certain philosophical ideas have the potential to critique and reform and perhaps radically alter the structure of existing institutions if taken seriously. And I think this is going to be one of those episodes in the second bucket where I want to just explore what would it mean to take seriously the kind of most rigorous philosophical arguments of people like Martha Nussbaum and other animal rights activists. Uh, the only real take I have that I'll kind of leave people with beyond my John Wick, my, my, my John Wick defense before we get started is that I think that there's actually an interesting potential for animal rights to conflict with a lot of other traditionally left-coded values and principles, right? if you actually take seriously the idea that animals have the same or at least almost the same moral standing as a human, then suddenly a lot of conduct that is either not punishable by law or is only modestly punished by law seems to become a much bigger deal and to require much more aggressive forms of state regulation and, and enforcement. So I'm, I'm interested in how as the kind of animal rights movement potentially gains steam, it might cause unexpected philosophical quandaries for its backers. But otherwise, Charles, I mean, what's what's your take before we get started?
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, as, as we alluded to, my, my goal in this episode is that I think you're internally inconsistent and you should be a vegetarian. And I'm hoping that our guest will convince you over the course of this episode the long-run goal of this show listeners is to convince Aaron to move to a compound like a, a rationalist compound in San Francisco and become a vegetarian. I've been working towards this. Actually, our guest Kelsey Piper recommended today's guest to me. And she hers that our argu with her was when I first conceived of this long run plan for Aaron's life. So so we're trying to actualize it in steps. No, I mean, you know, look, I do think I think that we're, we're, we're talking about animal, animal ethics. I think there's this sort of a slippery slope in in committing yourself to even sort of minimal views about the the intrinsic moral worth or the moral salience of animals, animal suffering, and then once you go part of the way, you kind of gotta go the whole way. And lots of people don't. I am, I'm i you know having having recognized this fact, I'm willing to commit myself to saying lots of things many people intuitively think are bad, or in fact not bad. I think it's wrong to torture animals. We can talk about this later. It's ethically bad to take pleasure in pain. That said, like uh, you know, I think I think people do not. This is an interesting area. I find this area interesting precisely because people are so often inconsistent on it in ways in ways that don't make a lot of sense to me. And I think if they thought about the need for consistency for five minutes, they would pretty dramatically change how they live. And I, you know, I think our guest, as far as I can tell, does a lot of work on which involves biting a lot of bullets. So why don't I why don't I go ahead and introduce our guest? Ozzy Brennan is a researcher at the Shrimp Welfare Project and a former researcher at Wild Animal Suffering Research. Ozzy also runs such at Thing of Things. Ozzy, welcome to Institutionalized.
2: I'm glad to be here.
0: We'll let you you open with sort of a provocative question, and I think that's sort of a straightforward one from your vocation. Why should we, including our listeners, be concerned about the welfare of shrimp?
2: Okay. So the thing is, is that we know absolutely nothing about shrimp. Like, um, about their welfare. Basically, or about whether they're sentient. Basically, like, a lot of very basic things like are they capable of learning? Are they capable of making making flexible decisions in of response to trade-offs? Do they feel pain? Do they, re, do they seek out painkillers when they're in pain? Which is actually something that's like really an important indicator of sentience because there are painkillers that, like, if you want painkillers, this is, in my opinion, a pretty strong indication that you're feeling pain because there's not really much other reason to seek them out. And so there, we've re- and it's only relatively recently that we started doing research like this about fish, and then we get into, and then if you start looking at shrimp, the thing about shrimp is that they are tiny. The average American eats a tenth of a cow over the course of the year, and also eats, god, probably more than a hundred shrimp, <laughs> and we don't eat that much shrimp. Like most people eat beef more often than they eat shrimp. It's just that shrimp are so small. In fact, if you look at fairly reasonable estimates, there are about 10 times as many shrimp eaten as all other farmed fish combined. So, you know, so there's a real question of like, okay, does, so there's a real question of like, okay, if shrimp are sentient, this is a big problem because there are a lot of individuals that are being affected. If shrimp are not sentient, then less of a big deal. Another thing that's really important about shrimp as opposed to other kinds of animals that is a hopefully a win-win situation for farmers and advocates is that a lot of the biggest welfare issues for shrimp are also things that tend to hurt the production of shrimp. For example... It's obviously bad for the shrimp if they die horribly of various exciting diseases. But this is also bad for shrimp production because often people in the developing world, most shrimp farmers in the developing world, and then you are losing your entire year's livelihood because you didn't know how to prevent shrimp diseases and your shrimp got sick and they all died. And now you are going to be having serious financial trouble in a way that we don't necessarily have in the developed world. So there's really a very much an opportunity for a win-win situation where we improve conditions for the shrimp, we improve conditions for the farmers. Everybody is happy, and this is nice because this is not really true. We have our kinds of farming,
1: <laughs> right? I mean, I mean, one thing that's interesting is so isn't that argument that well, this is a win-win, but it's a win-win because we know right. that the farmers are going to kill the shrimp. So it's like well, we improve their yes. welfare so that they can be killed. Which, yes. And I so, mean which which, which which I think would not be the kind of argument that one could make about humans as easily. Yes.
2: Yes. And this I think gets into one of the big problems that is very much a problem for all for animal advocacy of I think that one could say I think that if you care about animals at all factory farming is bad. It it's just is bad. But then you get into a question of like if you have the like ideal farming conditions and the like, you know, happy cows on happy farms or uh, happy farms, is it okay to kill them? And this is a philosophically difficult question. Personally, I feel like I'm okay with if trip or sentient. I'm okay with killing them as long as they were happy. Strip for you know the part where they're killing. I feel before they're killed. I feel more. I feel more conflicted about pigs. Although, do you guys know the logic of the larder argument? I guess probably you're, a bunch of your listeners know. it. Spell it,
0: it for the listeners, yeah.
2: Yeah. The logic of the larder argument is that most... Larder,
0: larder like where you keep food.
2: Yes. Is that most domesticated animals are things... Most farmed animals are things that we keep for food. Like, I think that some vegans who are not really very good at math have this sort of idea that like, oh yeah, we're going to like and farming and then we're gonna have all the cows live happy cow lives on farm sanctuaries somewhere and that's not going to happen. We can't even do that with dogs. Like and what is going to happen if we stop eating meat is that the farmed animal species are not going to go extinct but are going to like have a very small number of animals maybe kept in zoos or in other things like that. And so then there's very much a question of like okay if being a cow is valuable if you know we're like okay we like the world to have cows in it for whatever reason do we say well the only economic way we're going to get cows is if people eat well i guess cows we can get their milk and people are usually less concerned about that but the only economic way we can have pigs is by people eating the pigs and so there's a question of like okay could should we have high welfare pigs and then continue to have pigs and can have in this by stipulation, happy pigs who are living out happy lives that are shorter than they would otherwise be, or, you know, or do we go? Oh, yeah, maybe we, maybe we're okay with like pigs being functionally extinct as a species. And I think this is genuinely a very difficult question, and one that I have a lot of internal conflict about. Although, fortunately or unfortunately, the. Pe- current farming conditions are mostly bad enough that I am not especially complicated about, conflicted about the fish, the animals I might actually eat.
0: Yeah, So, it's I some, mean, well, and, and one, one concrete example of this, right, is, is the return of buffalo, that, that we uh-huh. almost turned to the buffalo to extinction, and what restored buffalo to now large numbers is that we created an industry and in producing eating buffalo. But I want to, <laughs> you know, I sort of want to, I want to stick with that, with the, the central concept here, because, you know, I think, I think that often does not make sense to me about, uh, about animal welfare arguments is okay. precisely this, which is like, if I, I don't know, raised a human, I have a little human who I'm raising. If I raised Me a too. human and, you know, took care of him and loved him and nurtured him. And then after a set period of time, I ate him. Everyone would agree <laughs> that that was very bad, regardless of right. how nice I had been him previously. Like we generally think that cannibalism is particularly grave evil. So given mm-hmm. that we have that sense about eating people why does why is why is the niceness with which we raise animals that we subsequently re- eat particularly relevant to the morality of the act
2: so i think that a lot of people do have the intuition that it is less bad for an animal to die early than it is for a human to die early and you know you can come up with and there are various ways that people sort of justify this intuition one way is that peter singer does is by saying that the animals can't can't really anticipate their death they don't have the fear of death the way that humans do the pig doesn't like you know go i because he's a preference utilitarian he thinks that you know the thing is the satisfied the thing is the the thing that matters is whether people's preferences are satisfied or in this case animals and so the pig doesn't have a preference to not be eaten and therefore it's okay to kill them if they had a high welfare life because the pig can't really cognitively understand the concept of death. And I feel like there is a obvious objection to this, which is that many animals do in fact understand the concept of death. They seem to object to it. <laughs> like
0: California.
2: Yeah, like, like, you know, I'm not sure how you would really tell if a pig understands the concept of death, but they sure do seem to object to being in slaughter, to like going to the slaughterhouse and like being killed like animals will run away from predators. It sure looks like they prefer to be alive. Martha Nussbaum, who I wrote an article about recently for the magazine Asterisk, had a, her argument is that death is bad when you are, death is bad when you're disrupting the ongoing projects of a, a, of a being's life. So like, and so this means that death is bad for the sort of creatures who can like have projects over time, you know, And so, and this is like pretty intuitive because like when we think about an old person dying, we're like, oh, you know, it was their time. They like did the things that they had to do, you know, and we're not so sad about it. But if somebody dies when they're quite young, we're like, oh, they never got a chance to get married. They never got a chance to have children. They never got a chance to, you know, do this or that or the other thing that they would have done. The problem is their ongoing projects. And so she argues that it is wrong to kill, for example, pigs because you are interfering in the pigs Ongoing piggy life projects,
1: which which which, and and presumably the reason, right. Th- this this gives us a way to maybe rank a bit the different yes the, the, the different yeah. kinds of suffering because pigs have projects because of their higher right. cognitive abilities, which which presumably, I mean, we don't mm-hmm. think that plankton,
2: for example, have life projects, right? In, in the same way, and the, going back to the the research I do, I. We don't know very much about shrimp sentience, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say that shrimp probably do not have ongoing life projects, right? Like they could, could they I... suffer, but you know. yeah, yeah, yeah. One thing that's maybe just worth
1: kind of disambiguating is, I mean, mm-hmm. there's there's life. One way to look at this is that after a certain level of you know mm-hmm. cognitive development, you you, you become it, it's possible for animals or species to have projects of various kinds right but another way to look at it would be to say well it's not so much the mere fact that they have projects it might also matter what the projects are and what kinds of goods in here in the projects right like like for example i mean i think that you know the the project of a long-term human marriage or relationship Mm -hmm. i mean yes there are monogamous animals but but like that that is right that's a unique thing that that like we have that you know even monogamous mm-hmm. animals don't quite have in the same way, and, and right. I think a lot of people have the intuition that that is just is at least a different kind of value and perhaps a, a greater mm-hmm. kind of value, right? I mean, so that's that's the other thing that comes into this, like what exactly are the projects and how much do does each right. project matter relative to you know the other projects?
2: Yeah, I think that and I think that that's something that is like well this, what we're thinking about is that, you know, do we think, oh, you know, somebody who is creating a great work of art, is this a more valuable project than, you know, a chickens project ongoing projects of like, well, very little baby chickens, mostly. <laughs> and, you know, and, and I this, it, I feel like a lot of these philosophical issues are ones that I am really, really uncertain about. And also, I'm uncertain about like, how we do the about how we do the trade-offs, because I am a consequentialist and like, I am willing to like go, okay, I will accept a certain amount of this really horrible thing as the cost of like this other good thing. If I'm like, okay, I think it is really horrible for us to kill pigs before they are, if I think it's really horrible for us to kill pigs before they've had a chance to live out a full life. But I am aware that the other option is that there aren't pigs and I would prefer that there be pigs. Then I have that kind of. Then I might go. Okay, I'm accepting this is the better of the two evils here, and that, of course, in the baby case, this would not apply because people will generally have babies even if they are not allowed to cannibalize them.
0: Let me, just very briefly. You're a second EA guest. Do you also think the public conclusion requires you to have more children?
2: I am not certain. Uh, <laughs> out. Um, Total i don't you know no, I, I i'm just like kind of uh, about population ethics
0: <laughs> uh, okay I, mean, I, wanna, I, I was i was just curious but no so so i want to i want to ask just a little about sort of concretes so obviously obviously much of your concern is sort of with is with the treatment of animals before death but how do right. you think about how do you think about sort of ethics of nutrition broadly what should we eat? What shouldn't we eat? And how do you think about how we think about that decision making process? Okay.
2: So I think one of the things that is the thing that people are most likely to not think about when they are picking up food to eat is that they think that they do not think about the size of the animals. And you think you, and I was mentioning this earlier with shrimp, shrimp are tiny. And this is actually like one, of, one of the overriding factors. And if you're thinking about how to minimize the suffering to animals from your diet, is that larger animals produce more meat, so there for each kilogram of meat you eat, there is less suffering associated with it. So what this means is, don't eat chickens. Okay. <laughs> and I was actually like running the numbers for a blog post that isn't out yet, and about ninety-five percent of the suffering. Obviously, this is a running numbers with extremely made-up numbers, but you know, running out ninety-five percent of the suffering in the average American diet comes from farmed fish, chicken, and eggs. And that like, if you stop eating those three things, that is almost all of the, the good that you get from like being vegan because, and dairy is pretty is pretty harmless because, because the cows produce so much milk for the amount of suffering that the cow has. And interestingly, this means that a lot of the ways of people like going, oh, I care about animals. I'm gonna like try and cut back my meat consumption. Is not very good because they are like, oh, I'm gonna cut cut back on cows, <laughs> and because cows are like, you know, because cow- I'm gonna cut back on cows because cows feel like they matter more morally because they're mammals, and that's bad because cows are also very very large and produce an enormous amount of meat per cow, like 400 pounds, and it, conversely, chickens are rather small, producing a much smaller amount of meat per animal, and therefore you sh- and therefore is much better in terms of like the amount that is disrupting your diet if you're comparing the amount that's disrupting your diet versus the you know yeah that so, it's better
1: so i don't yeah. i don't have to feel that guilty about having a nice cut of steak but i should feel guilty about having my popeyes chicken sandwich
2: yes or more guilty about it. i'm actually like not <laughs> the grass-fed beef is actually one of the things that i have like closest to accepting the logic of the larder argument about because being a grass-fed cow is pretty okay (laughs) like honestly the vegan police will come like yell at me for saying this but like it's not great like but it's mostly a pretty evolutionarily normal life being a grass-fed cow is mostly a pretty evolutionary normal life without any predators and with medical treatment except for the part where they have a variety of medical procedures happening without pain relief. And of course, this transportation and slaughter is very unpleasant, but like mostly it seems fine. <laughs> and so then it gets to more of the question of like, whether it is okay to kill them is, but like beef is something that I think is lower priority to worry about. And I, both because their lives are not quite as bad and because like they're large.
0: Let me, but let me let me just, and then and then we can. I, I I know I've come back to this before, but I I I want to do the reductio a little bit. Like, so I know I know a moderate sized animal. That's it's not the <laughs> biggest animal. It's a relatively small one. And if I eat it, I could eat way right. fewer chickens. So is it cannibalism okay? Like you know we can have oh. humanely farmed people. Man.
2: There's a Neil Gaiman short story called Baby Cakes that is about this exact thing. <laughs> it's a it's good story. It's pretty, it's pretty screwed up. But man, I feel like the I knew that this is the cop-out utilitarian answer. Whenever you know, you get some sort of like thing that where they're like, shouldn't you be allowed to murder to, to like murder random people in the hospital waiting room in order to like for their organs or transfer the organs to the organ transplant patients? And the utilitarians are like, Okay, so in principle, that's the implication of our theories, but in practice, you shouldn't do that because of like social norms and the fact that nobody would go to hospitals and they might be randomly murdered in a hospital waiting room. And so like I think so part of my feeling is that like, okay, we have good social norms against murder for a reason, and like don't murder people it like there are many negative consequences of murdering people that are not necessarily negative consequences of eating a cow. and secondly is that. I'm a little bit speciesist. I think that I think that like if when I think about what is the harm of death, and I'm thinking about the sort of ongoing projects and things, I'm not like I think I think that in general the ongoing the ongoing projects that humans have are more valuable than the ongoing projects of like of pigs because we can do many complex things that pigs cannot do, and like we have and. This is not necessarily a super like and this is sort of my intuition, and I think it's a pretty common one. And I know not necessarily this about all animals. Like if you were like, okay, you could have to kill a human or a chimpanzee, I am going to at least I'm going to be deeply conflicted about this. But I think that like, okay, do you kill a human or a cow but like how bad is it for a cow to die? Oh no. <laughs> you know, like it seems like some of the things that make d- death bad for humans don't necessarily apply to, to many non-human animals, although they do seem to, app- I would expect that they would apply to some non-human animals, like chimpanzees.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think one thing that's worth just highlighting here is it's totally coherent to think that there are multiple values that kind of right. go into the function that determines whether it's okay to eat something or not. And right. we might just think, look you know rational capacities is one sentience is another pound per you know how much how much utility is derived per pound of meat is another (laughs) like like you can like there's all these different things and and to be honest charles i mean it's funny hearing hearing aussie talk i actually think once you you seem to think that the more you think through this stuff the more you realize that you have to be kind of all or nothing veganism or we just don't give a shit about animals i actually have the opposite thought which is there are so many different ethically relevant considerations that it's really really easy for me to just imagine oh well just you know the function in it's a multivariate function it involves a lot of different values and so i can just like gerrymander the philosophical function to justify whatever I'm already doing and give it kind of the veneer of rigor and consistency, because there's just so many different philosophical views and traditions out there. This isn't really that hard to do for someone who has some like baseline fluency and the like utilitarian and value pluralist traditions. So so far in this conversation, I'm like, oh wait, I could actually justify all my inconsistent intuitions and it's perfectly fine. But not take that, Charles. But not eating chickens. Don't eat chickens. No, yeah. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> and and I and I like birds. So like that's actually like that's like I, I, I do feel guilty about eating chickens. So I'm like, this isn't this actually isn't like that hard for me. It's like, okay, I really like steak. I don't like chicken as much. This is like actually great. Like, look, it already kind look, of comports with my tastes. It just so as, happens as, as, that like morality justifies everything I already like.
0: As right. long as you start spending a lot of money on bed nets,
1: I I, I will say I am I am sympathetic to the idea that
0: Americans are morally saying.
1: required to spend radically more.
0: Let me let me yeah, yeah you yeah. you want to I, I was going to ask you want to ask animal neoconservatism? should I ask about animal neoconservatism? You can ask about animal neoconservatism because you've coined who, that you beautiful I what that is, grade.
2: and I'm bracing myself.
0: Oh, yeah, get okay. ready, get ready. So, so, so <laughs> animals, animals are, animals, infl- <laughs> we don't just inflict suffering on animals. Animals also inflict a lot of suffering on each other. Like most dolphin sex is non-consensual. And the question is, if we have some affirmative responsibility to limit the suffering of animals, are we obligated to intervene in the affairs of animals to minimize the injustices that they do to one another? <laughs> <laughs> oh God!
2: Um, <laughs> okay. The animals—they so, need
1: our—they need our help to set up an animal democracy. They—they they yeah,
0: can't. Yeah. They don't have democracy like, on their own. Like, but when we like help if, the dolphins, like if they'll, dolphins they'll are there. in fact sentient, if dolphins are as smart as we believe, they are also incredibly immoral. Like like we cannot yeah. allow the dolphins to continue. To, okay? So so so, what do you make of this view?
2: So. There's actually a theory in wild animal welfare stuff that talks about how animal animals are their like, oh, sort of like their uh, wild animals are sort of like their own polity, and we don't want to like intervene in the like operation of this polity. And I am that like, okay, but they're a failed state. That is the worst run polity I've ever heard of. Everybody's running around eating each other all the time. So, but yeah, the pro the problem is that. Everything you do to intervene in nature has like 10,000 knock-on effects. Like when I was noticing, I figured this out when I was doing research for wild animal suffering research. And I was like doing things. And I'm like, okay, so it's possible that the primary effect of this thing is maybe actually uh, the primary effect of supplemental feeding of deer is possibly actually that then the deer get overpopulated and then they eat more of the high value grass and that other animals don't have that grass to eat and that they starve. And it's just like, everything is so complicated. And so if we had like infinite resources, would I be like, yes, if in the world we infinite resources, we need to go to animal neoconservatism. Yeah, but in the practice, in the regular world, it's not gonna work that well. <laughs> Which is not to say that we shouldn't have well targeted interventions into wild animal welfare that do small things right that and like I think that there's sort of an intuition that like you know wildlife rehabilitation is a good thing to happen it's a nice thing to have you know a to have somebody who goes takes the injured birds and helps them recover you know there's sort of like this is not actually a very radical position and we are like constantly intervening in nature. So they're sort of, so like, I think that if you're talking about like, okay, what, does our, what are our duties to wild animals? Like people are like, oh, we can't vaccinate the raccoons for rabies. You know, to keep them from getting rabies because that, if we care about the raccoons getting rabies, but we do vaccinate, vaccinate raccoons for rabies often because we're concerned about humans and about farmed animals. <laughs> And companion animals. And so it seems to me that like if you're like if you're saying, okay, well, it's okay to vaccinate the raccoons for this other reason, then it should also be okay to vaccinate the raccoons for the sake of the raccoons. Right. And that when we are making these sort of wildlife management decisions, we should take into account the well-being of the wild animals. And also we should take a humble approach and realize that everything has like 500 flow-through effects, and the largest effect of them is going to be some kind of, like, random thing about, and then this increases the reproduction rate of this other species that's six items away, and it's like six steps away on the food chain.
1: (laughs) Right, so this is, this is, this is basically like, this is, instead of animal neoconservatism, it's like animal neoliberalism leavened (laughs) by a kind of Chestertonian or Hayekian skepticism of central planning. I mean, yeah. I mean, I kind of, I can. I, I, I makes sense to me. Ch- Charles, Charles is like is one step what, closer. Charles to is the like, what have I done? What have I done? Mean, no, it's
0: all part of the plan. <laughs> well, so so we should ask about the we should ask about the corollary, which is sort of the the, the view that we should try to minimize predatory behaviors, right? So so this sort of the you allude to the the Nussbaum argument, the Nussbaum argument that you know it's 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 good to optimize for the capabilities of a species we allow them to fulfill their mm-hmm. capabilities. But obviously like the capabilities of lots of species involve killing other animals. So how yeah. do you know for yeah and indeed, the capabilities of the human being involved the killing and consumption of other animals. We got canines. So how do we how do we deal with that basic tension? So this by the way is why like, I'm Beth... the analytics my I do. because I think yeah. the rest of the world is hostile to humans, not for humans to everybody else.
2: So one of the things is going back to, is it bad if animals die before they live out a sort of natural lifespan or whatever, And which is the issue we talked about before. And another thing is that there's actually this interesting amount of anthropocentrism about how bad predation is. And obviously this is a subject that has not been researched in a whole lot of detail, but we can look at chronic stress levels in animals and sort of get a sense of how, stressed they are by predation and a lot of animals do not seem to experience any sort of like chronic stress about predation and my best guess about what their experience is is sort of like okay well this happens and then they go ah, for like a couple couple of minutes and they shrug it off and go back to what they were doing which is not I think a like necessarily a huge welfare problem of course dying the dying process is probably pretty painful but then you start getting into a bunch of questions like okay what is you know is this less painful than dying of disease or starvation probably so but yeah what you actually get it's actually very species specific whether chronic whether predation causes chronic stress what you normally get it is in longer lived species who have a longer lived species who sort of have a chance to like live in different predation environments and to learn from okay, wow, there's a lot of predators around here. I should change my behavior. With, whereas if you sh- or maybe like hold off and wait and s- try and have kids in the future when there's fewer predators around and this is safer for me. Whereas if you're like a very short-lived species, you're like, okay, I just had to have kids now. I, can't, I am going to die if I wait for there to be less predation. And also ones that have a variable level of predation over time. Like deer don't seem to be chronically stressed by predation because deer basically have the same level of predation all the time. Like there's not a whole lot of variation in terms of how likely they are to be killed by wolves. But if you look at the snowshoe hare, which is very possibly the worst designed species on the planet, they have this like 10 year cycle where they have tons of babies, they hit peak. And then this causes a bunch of predators to have also had a ton of babies and then like eat all of them. And then they like all get horribly eaten. And then they like hit the bottom and then they like and so they are really, really stressed out and unhappy about being in the decline period when there are tons of predators and all the predators are eating them constantly. But this is because like, if you're a sosho hare, there's actually a difference between the rise and the decline. Whereas if you're like a deer, this is, it's not so much, it's basically constant. Sosho hares are a dumb species. <laughs> so, so, So what other
1: idea that's kind of lurking in the background of this basic capabilities Mm -hmm. is that in in some sense the good is almost relativized to the nature of particular species it's a very aristotelian idea actually right like there's something like like i think you and your essay channeling nussbaum have this line where you say look you know uh elephants need these open plains to kind of live happy fulfilled lives and macaw parrots need open skies right they need something else Mm -hmm. you know and and it's, it's not just that they need these things to physically survive it's that I guess because of sort of inborn drives specific to the animal they won't be happy and fulfilled yep. whatever that means kind of you know absent certain environmental conditions and i guess i want to bring that back to the, this question about animal justice right right because there are some species that just the way they mate and reproduce is horrifying like there's certain spiders right. where the female like you know kills and eats the male right after they meet mm-hmm. which which i mean we just i think you know uh Lysistrata and various other greek myths aside we, we, we think you know that, that that that's that's immoral right you're not you're not you know you can't you can't kill someone immediately after having sex with them or ever like you're not you're not supposed to do that <laughs> but but if that is like a kind of just natural biological instinct of mm-hmm. and even imperative right If that's like the only way in some case that uh people can i think in part sometimes it's like the the babies will actually eat like the dead spider so it's it's like right you know if you don't do this like uh, you know they won't be able to reproduce like what is it like what do we say about that where it seems like kind of if if you're doing this aristotelian approach where you say the good is relativized to each species you end up saying that well for some species like cannibalism rape and other things are good right i mean and getting inside the prudential worries about like you know, animal colonialism or whatever, that just seems like a kind of (laughs) tough bullet to bite.
2: Yeah. I think that, I think it is a pretty tough bullet to bite. And it is something where I do want to be where, it's something where I do want to, on one hand, be wary of like inappropriate anthropomorphization. Like it's very Mm. easy to go, if something would be bad for us, then it is also bad for the animal. And you sort of imagine like hyper-intelligent chickens going, Oh, these poor humans can't dust bathe. They have, they (laughs) never have dust to go flop on their cells. They must be so miserable, you know? And so, because honestly, part of the reason I end up really sympathetic to Aristotelianism here is that anytime you're doing any sort of study on animal welfare or what makes animals happy or well being, you end up just sort of getting this like kind of Aristotelian, well, the natural end of the species thing. Yeah. It's sort of defining it in the species relative sense. On the other hand, you don't want to fall into the naturalist fallacy and go, oh, because these animals are, because they evolved this way, therefore it's good. And it, it, chimpanzees do all kinds of horrific stuff to each other all the time. And they you know, probably feel about the same way about it as we do. And you don't want to go, well, the chimpanzees evolved to, evolved to do this. So therefore they, the chimpanzees evolved to do war. So therefore the war is great. I mean, humans plausibly also evolved to do war. <laughs> Ed Moore is not great. And so I think this is sort of a cheater answer, but I think that what we have to do is try to study the individual species and try to get a sense of what is, okay, for this individual species, what is it like? What is their relationship to the thing that's happening to them? You want to try and look at the tools we have, many of which are not great. You know, chronic stress measurement is like an incredible minefield of methodological problems. But like you try and use the measures we have, we try to figure out, okay, and make that sort of empathetic step and go, okay, what is it like to be a member of this species? And accept that, and accept that like we are, it try to be humble about it and realize that these are two mistakes that we're very likely to make on both sides. And I realize that this is a bit of a cop out of an answer you know, to be fair,
1: um, there always are kind of cop out answers in philosophy. Right. Like, if, if, if any if anyone who's spent enough time reading this stuff, every single I remember one time a professor in college said something, it was a serious moral philosopher said, Look, I've been doing this for 40 years. I know all the views, and all the views have problems. It's typically the case in philosophy that all of the answers suck it's a matter of picking the least sucky one i mean so like yeah i i i'm sympathetic to i, I don't think it's fair to like say ah that view ultimately rests on this kind of vague, equivocating or cop-out answer it's like yeah, it's like <laughs> yeah. everyone's views ultimately do I, the <laughs> only other thing i was going to say is that uh, you're you're uh, you know it's it's worth considering that uh, for a certain species right they literally could not survive because of the way evolutionists mm-hmm. made them if they didn't do the like things we yep. regard as gross and buggy but that's not the case for humans and war, right? Like, it's not. I mean, right. you can argue that there are evolutionary drives that then manifest in war, but it's. I don't think anyone seriously thinks that, like, you know, mm-hmm. World War Two was like <laughs> good, like, like necessary for humanity. I mean, mm-hmm. like, no, that that's just a weird. So that's like one way you can maybe draw yeah. the draw out the distinction a little bit.
0: Mm-hmm. So I guess I guess you know we we've talked a lot of and like Aaron said we sort of want to go to closing thoughts in a minute but before we do that I you know we've talked a lot in this conversation about mm-hmm. how we score intuitions and when we sort of are willing to bite ethical bullets and when we aren't you know I think you've you've given us one counterintuitive conclusion that you've reached which is people shouldn't eat chickens which yeah. is like which is a big argument <laughs> I guess I want to I want to ask you what is the uh, you know usually towards the end I like to ask a question about concrete takeaways so I'm going to ask you for concrete personal takeaway what beyond don't eat chickens is your is your sort of most counterintuitive recommendation to our listeners what what how how should they live differently having listened to this podcast
2: well my my advice is don't eat chickens or eggs or farmed fish okay. <laughs> so it's technically a three step thing but i think that like I, if i'm going for a broader counterintuitive thing i think that one of the things that i have noticed in being an effective altruist is that People like get caught up in a lot of like really complicated philosophical stuff and are like, okay, well, we have to, what is our like moral pluralist approach to this or whatever. But I think that actually, if you just take the kind of ethics you learn in kindergarten and then like actually take them seriously, you have to do a lot of really wild and demanding and counterintuitive stuff. (laughs) Like if you're like, okay, you know, your sort of kindergarten ethics of like, it's bad to be ro- It's ba- it's bad to be cruel to animals, and it's good to. And people aren't worthless just because they live very far away from you. And it is good to take concern for the future. Then you start doing all these wild things, like not eating chickens, or donating a high percentage of your income to buy malaria nets, or being really concerned about the artificial artificial intelligence takeover in a couple of decades. And I think that. It is easy to get caught up in philosophy, but I think that if you are just sort of taking the sort of common sense morality and taking it seriously, then you will usually end up doing some pretty wild stuff. I think that that is my takeaway.
0: Okay, fair enough. Aaron, what's 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 your takeaway from this conversation? Uh, where your where your thoughts?
1: Well, as I as I said, I, I, I do think that in some ways this conversation actually just gave me more resources to justify what charles regards as a totally
0: <laughs> incoherent position. i've never let, i've never serving you chicken again for the record uh,
1: <laughs> but honestly but honestly no but i mean look i i, I think yeah the, the other thing i would just say yeah so it, it it may it may be that this kind of demanding vegetarian worldview isn't actually quite as demanding as people think if they if they build in these specifications that let them kind of rank the relative value of Mm -hmm. different kinds of meat eating or rather the disvalue of it i guess the only other thing i would say too is like this is a much broader conversation we can't get into but you know it raises the question of of whether of over demandingness like in moral Mm -hmm. philosophy and whether just because something is really hard means it's not required of you and look i will say i am inclined to think that over demandingness like is a problem and that if something really requires just massive amounts of like self-control or sacrifice beyond what you know most people are capable of that actually is like you know a problem for that ethical theory Mm -hmm. but you know to to give the other side of it right like i you know if if your ethical theory can't ever say that you have to do something hard that's also probably bad right clearly ethics sometimes requires us to do hard things so you know it is good to be cautious of going too far in the other direction where you say, Oh, well, like that would be really hard and require this huge change in the status quo. Therefore, like it must be bullshit. I mean, if we actually applied that consistently, right, Charles, I mean, you, I think would concede that that attitude can also be to all sorts of crazy conclusions. So I don't know. I, I mean, I, I leave the conversation at the very least. I, I, I am no less inclined to think that John Wick is a wonderful hero. <laughs> I'll say
0: that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean look, I think I don't know, I think I I on the one hand, I think that the view here is at least, you know, intelligible and consistent on some levels, but I think it requires embracing a sort of scale of utilitarianism that most people are not intuitively comfortable with. Like we kinda got into why it's wrong to eat people. I really get into <laughs> why it's wrong to eat people. I'm left unclear as to why it's wrong to eat people that's fine you know ozzy's work is not about i I'm, I'm pretty sure ozzy's not eating any people i'm pretty sure aaron's not gonna eat any people so it's a it's a hypothetical but i you know i i i do think that that's also to the great point about demanding this but 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 i do think certainly it's a more persuasive account than 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 many vegans will offer and and for that i'll give it credit
2: i am a practical person we have spent 50 years trying to convince people to stop eating animal products and they have been eating the same amount of animal products or like more and so now i i think we should try and convince them to not eat eggs and chicken and farmed fish and then maybe they will do that
0: (laughs) why don't why don't we take that as an opportunity to do some recommendations we can start with aaron aaron what is your recommendation for our listeners this week i have skew so one i may have recommended
1: this before actually i don't remember but um there's this essay in the New Atlantis called "Do Elephants Have Souls," which is all about elephants and how they le- elephant. I mean, we don't really eat elephants, but that that, for what it's worth, is another example of an animal that nobody should hurt. And as a side note, I am I am very pro I'm very pro hurting poachers. Poachers poachers are bad. Should. John Wick, the next John Wick movie after four, they should make one where he like kills elephant poachers. That would be, that would be great. But then the other recommendation is, yeah, honestly, John Wick four. It's pretty fucking awesome. It's, 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 it's it's quite good. Watch, watch John Wick four.
0: I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to be the lighthearted wreck this week. As long as we're, as long as we're talking about, as long as we're talking about eating and cooking, my recent favorite cookbook to read such an older book by the chef Tyler Core. The book is entitled A Super Upsetting Cookbook About Sandwiches. You can get it on the internet where they sell books. It's a, it's, it's, it's a super upsetting cookbook about sandwiches. I very much enjoyed reading it. I don't actually, I haven't made any sandwiches from it, but it was edifying for how to think about sandwiches, which is a thing I do a lot. Ozzy, do you have any recommendations from yeah. your work, from the work of others that you would recommend for our listeners?
2: So the first thing I would like to recommend, if you like a numbers-based approach to a sort of economics based approach to farm animal welfare, the book "Compassion by the Pound" is great. It is really in depth. It is hugely influential, on everybody I know who's doing a- effective animal advocacy, I really recommend it. I also recommend the book "Do Fish Feel Pain," which is about what it exactly it says on the title. It's by one of the leading researchers on whether fish feel pain, and it is both, I think, a very convincing description of what we do and do don't, don't know about fish feeling pain, and also is great because of all of the horrifying alien abduction experiments they are doing on these poor fish. Like, I, 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 I think that the, alien, that the gray aliens are trying to abduct us to figure out whether we're sentient. Um, and finally, I recommend that if you choose to watch John Wick 4, what you should do is sort of have in the back of your mind what would, it would be the experience of being the HR person or the guy who runs the central bank of the assassins, which exists because they have their own monetary system. And just sort of imagine what that guy's life is like. It improves the movie a lot.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm already, I I already was planning to see it again.
0: And now I'm going to see it again with that exact thing in mind. And it's going to be awesome. (laughs) Well, with that, Ozzy, thank you so much for joining us on Institutionalized. Thank you, as always, to our producers at Nebulous. Listeners, if you have questions, comments, concerns, compliments, recipes that you'd like to send our way, you can always find us on twitter i'm at charles f lehman aaron is at aaron Severium i think that's about all the time that we're giving to this episode so until next time i'm charles fane lehman i'm aaron Saverium. and you've been listening to institutionalized join you know, we'll us again soon